As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, it's, uh, well, there's been a bit of drama in the treasury market once again. Yeah, I noticed um, you got to do one of your Tracy Alloway signature things where you talk about a move that happened that's only supposed (laughs) to happen like once every three billion years. Yes, um, I love talking about those because it really gives everyone the opportunity to show that they've read uh, Taleb's books by saying that the world isn't normally distributed. (laughs) But of course, uh, we did see some pretty big moves in the Treasury market. So first of all, the 10-year yield jumped up to 1.6%. This was in the last week of February. But the really big move came in the five year. And I think that one had something like a seven or eight standard deviation move. You know, one of those things that's only supposed to happen in like 10 yeah. billion years kind of things. And really, I, I know people make fun of standard deviations and Sigma events, but really we're talking about the world's most liquid market and stuff like this right. keeps happening. This is, I think the fourth big, uh, bout of treasury market chaos that we've had in just a couple of years. So I'm thinking back, we had one in, um, what was it? September, 2019, we had repo madness. Then we had the March chaos in 2020 with the levered UST trades blowing up. And then we had a mini rates blowout in October, 2020. And now we just had the most recent incident. So something is going on and clearly there is a persistent issue in the US treasury market. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on at once these days because there seems to be ongoing structural issues, Mm -hmm. questions about liquidity, which is weird in A, the world's most deep and liquid market, and B, a market in which the Fed is actively supplying a lot of uh, liquidity or very active in the market. And then, of course, it's interacting with the economic situation and the policy situation because we have this Fed that said, we're not going to raise rates until the economy hits these benchmarks. And everyone's watching to see the Fed's credibility. We also have a very uh, rapidly improving economy. We have people warning about inflation for the first time. So all kinds of things happening at once. But yes, to your point, the big action, we've seen we've seen rates at the long end, 10-year, 30-year yields have been rising for a while since the middle of last year. Mm-hmm. But it's really the action at the shorter end that's striking here. Yeah. 
And of course, one of the weird things about last week is you mentioned the economy, but we had this big tantrum in bond yields without a corresponding taper, I guess. So we kind of had a taperless tantrum because not that much changed last week. We didn't have Fed speakers talking about rates rising or anything like that, but we had this huge move in the bond market. So a lot of focus on microstructure at the moment, a lot of focus on liquidity, ease of trading, and um, the overall organization of the treasury market. And we have the perfect person to talk about all those things. We're going to be speaking with Zoltan Pozar from Credit Suisse. I can't wait. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, So Zoltan, I should say, in addition to being a strategist over at Credit Suisse, has also been on the Odd Thoughts podcast multiple times. Uh, So we will be getting you uh, that tote bag uh, any day now, Zoltan. Thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you very much for having me. I should just say one more thing, which is that every time there's any volatility in the rates market, someone IBs me (laughs) and says, you guys got to get Zoltan on again. It happens every time anything ticks higher on some screen of like, overnight funding rates or whatever. They're like, when do you have Exultant back on the episode? So this is a uh, lot of requests uh, for this one. Sorry, go on. (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, I mean, why don't we start out with the big question? So every time there's some sort of chaos in the rates market, Joe gets an IB asking for you to come on the show. There have been a lot of those over the past couple of years. And as we were discussing, that's something you wouldn't necessarily expect for the world's most liquid market. So What's going on here and why do we keep getting these sort of um, mini blowups in rates? I think people get shaken out of their positions all the time. Uh, I mean, just to, just to maybe set the, set the stage for the conversation, I think there's, there's a number of things that are happening um, that has happened last week. For a number of weeks now, and really since the, um, the Democratic win and the blue sweep, you know, the Treasury curve has been steepening quite remarkably. I mean, relative to uh, the slope of curves in Germany, in France, in Japan, you know, the U.S. Treasury curve has gotten quite steep uh, for a number of reasons. You had you had the, the blue sweep. You have the vaccine rollout, which is, you know, happening in the U.S. Um, more rapidly, perhaps, than in other parts of the world. You have uh, the market starting to price in recovery. Uh, the market trying to price in the inflation outlook. And the market is, you know, getting uh, excited about the idea that with inflation will surely come some Fed action and the Fed is going to, you know, try to chase down inflation or keep it in check. And so all of these things, I think, have driven the steepening of the curve. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that the steepening of the curve has been fairly orderly. Okay. And so what happened last week was a little bit plumbing related, but again, the the, the underlying structural uh, driver of rising yields has been more fundamentally driven. What happened last week, I, I would say that there were two central banks that were quite a bit in the headlines um, uh, last week, and, and that got the markets a little bit jittery. I think there were some headlines around uh, the RBNZ, and there were some headlines around the RBA. You know, with the RBNZ, I think what uh, what didn't help the situation was the market interpreted the headline that the uh, the finance minister of New Zealand has forced a new mandate um, on, on 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 the Reserve Bank of, of New Zealand, which is you know house price targeting and house prices have been through the roof in New Zealand, and so hikes are coming because of that. 
which is which is absolutely not the case. I mean, you know, the RBNZ's policy mandate is pretty much unchanged. I mean, they have their price stability mandate, they have their um, full employment mandate, they have their uh, financial stability mandate, and all that has happened is that that financial stability mandate get a more explicit piece to it, which is you know looking at house prices more carefully. Um, in the future, particularly house price dynamics driven by uh, second home buyers and, and invest pro- investment property buyers. So that was number one. Number two, um, the RBA had breached uh, a yield curve target. Okay, and so the market was looking very closely at um, the three-year point in the in the Australian government bond market, and it got you know one basis points, two basis points, three basis points higher. Uh, than the yield curve target, and the RBA didn't really do anything, and so because the RBA was slow, slow to respond to, to 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 the breach of that yield curve target, um, I think the market got quite spooked by that. You know, Australian accounts did try to get long uh, Australian bonds, but you know things were moving so fast and prices were gapping so much that um, they got you know limited down very quickly. So if you couldn't take advantage of the sell-off in the Australian yields. Uh, what a lot of uh, accounts in Australia have done is they have rather shorted uh, U.S. U.S. Treasuries, and so now we are in a Tuesday Wednesday timeframe. And then by the time we got to Thursday in the U.S., we had a scheduled seven-year auction, um, and that auction went absolutely horribly. It was, you know, one of the most uh, undersubscribed in in recent memory. I forget uh, how far you have to go back to find something as lowly subscribed. And, you know, that also had some technical drivers to it because, you know, in the U.S., we are in this kind of no man's land from a from a regulatory perspective where the bank portfolios that are normally have a big presence in in these uh, in these auctions have been a bit on the sidelines lately because there is a big question mark in the U.S. regarding, you know, the SLR treatment of of treasuries. You know, is it going to get extended, you know, the exemption from the SLR or not? Um, so, so there was a, a, a lot of uncertainty about that. And then, you know, you mentioned the five-year point. I mean, it so happens that, you know, a popular trade in the U.S. has been, you know, people shorting the the, the five-year and being short the five-year and and, uh, long the 30-year. And, you know, as all these rates market dynamics were happening and the market was, you know, questioning central banks' commitments to low rates for a long time, I think, you know, people were just shaken out of these uh, carry positions. And, you know, we have a financial system that is um, highly levered because rates are so low, right? So one way of generating a, a decent amount of return with low risk, low yielding assets is you lever it up. And every time you have a change in expectations and your understanding of the world and for how long the central banks are willing to stay accommodative, uh, you get shaken out of these positions and and uh, things are quite volatile when that happens. So there's obviously... a quite a bit uh, going on here. And I, the way you laid it out is really great. And of course, it seems like a classic finance thing that even though there's a lot of different things, somehow it randomly gets kicked off by policy choices at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand or the Reserve Bank of Australia, and then it spills into there. You mentioned the SLR and the questions about that. And in fact, some of the IVs that I get when they like when they want to hear you on, it's specifically about that what is it? I'm aware that something, some decision has to be made at the end of this month that's going to affect uh, bank liquidity, but sort of describe what this sort of this ambiguity that's hanging over the market is and how that is affecting um, uh, rates market liquidity. So this is a big topic. I, I'm you know, trying to think through how to attack the yeah. question. 
Okay. I think one, you know, the, the, you know, the, there's lots of ambiguities, right? So, you know, first of all, we have an exemption currently in place, which says that you know reserves, just cash at central banks, and treasuries that a bank holds, are exempt from calculating the the supplementary leverage ratio. So these these leverage ratios are much higher uh, because of that now, and that exemption um, was put in place on April first last year. And it's set to expire at the end of this month, March 31st. And so no one knows whether it's going to get extended, whether it's going to be renewed temporarily or, or if it's going to, whether it's going to get extended permanently, whether it's going to get taken away. You know, a letter from uh, Senator Brown and Senator Warren were in the headlines today. Um, yeah. you know, they've sent, sent a letter to, to the Federal Reserve arguing against making this exemption permanent. Uh, there are ideas uh, that have been uh, put forth by um, the Professor Daryl Duffy uh, at Stanford that you know maybe only reserves should be exempted permanently, but not treasuries. Uh, that would be more in line with the global standard where you know the ECB has exempted reserves, the SNB has exempted reserves, but that exemption, by the way, ended at the end of uh, uh, December uh, already. You know, the Bank of England exempts reserves, so that would be more in line with uh, the international standard. But you know, the downside of that would be that you know the banks would be forced to sell treasuries because you know if your balance sheet constrained um, and only reserves are exempt from the SLR, and you bought a lot of treasuries last year, then you will have to sell uh, all those treasuries. So that's that's what this this uh, this uncertainty is. You know, when it comes to the SLR relief, there is really two things that you want to think about. The first is that we are not done with QE and we are not done with you know, the, the wall of cash hitting the banking system. Right? So there's two things on the horizon that we are focused on. Number one, treasury's cash balances are coming down. I mean, you know, that's $1.6 trillion of cash sitting in, in, a, in, a, in a bank account at, at, the, at the Federal Reserve. And, and as those balances come down, reserves in the banking system are going to go up. And number two, QE is ongoing, and it's $120 billion a month. So, you know, at face value, if all the treasuries cash balances come down to zero, and if QE proceeds this year, we are going to be adding 2 to $3 trillion of cash into the banking system. And so the banking system does not have the balance sheet to take on 2 to $3 trillion of cash without SLR relief. You know, so the thinking goes. And then the other problem is that, you know, the ban on stock buybacks ended and the banks are, you know, getting ready to, to return capital to shareholders. And, and, and if, you, if you buy back stock and this SLR exemption does not happen, then you basically are in a position where the banking system is going to return capital to shareholders that would otherwise have been used to take on more reserves and, 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 and treasuries in the in the system. So when we talk about this SLR exemption, we, we kind of think about it as this magic bullet that's going to allow the banking system to take on two or three trillion dollars of reserves. So let's assume that that SLR exemption happens. You know, this SLR exemption really matters for the for the handful of big banks that that really are key for for the U.S. financial system. And these banks are uh, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Bank of America, 
I would perhaps put, you know, PNC in that bucket as well. So the, these are these are the banks that are the big repositories of deposits and reserves and treasury securities, and they are the banks that have been underwriting the the fiscal and monetary expansion all of all of last year. So so let's assume that we we do this SLR exemption. So what would happen? Would you know a bank like J.P. Morgan be in pole position to put on another five hundred billion dollars of reserves at the Fed and another five hundred billion dollars of deposits? As the stimulus checks go out, the answer is no, because you know J.P. Morgan has two constraints. It has an SLR constraint, and it has a GSIP constraint. So even if you exempt reserves and treasuries from the SLR, you know that bank is still not going to be in a position to take on massive amounts of new deposits and additional reserves and additional treasury securities because that would push their GSIP score and their GSIP surcharge from four percent to four and a half percent. And, you know, and their management has repeated a number of times that they don't want to have a higher GSIP score, and they don't want a higher capital ratio than twelve and a half percent. Okay, so you know, SLR exemption or not, you know, JP Morgan is not in a position to take on a large amount of additional uh, reserves. So that's number one. Number two, you know, Wells Fargo is a bank that I have been writing about. Uh, a lot recently. Wells Fargo is is in a unique situation because they they are under an asset growth ban, okay, and they they have been put into that place because uh, of you know past issues they have had, and the Fed has put them in in this asset growth ban position. So you know the the analogy there is if you if you think of the U.S. financial system as a seven four seven, a Boeing seven four seven, it's really had been it it really has been flying on three engines because the fourth engine you know is just not. Work, working at the moment that that's Wells Fargo. You know, if you have an SLR exemption, you're still not going to help Wells Fargo because they can't grow their balance sheet much. Okay, so that's that's the second thing. The third, Citibank is, you know, it's a unique creature, right? Because it's half global, half U.S. It's mostly an institutional bank, not a retail bank, so it doesn't have as big a retail presence as as, as J.P. Morgan or or Bank of America. So, you know, as all the stimulus checks are going out and all this cash is coming into the system. You know their deposit growth is you know not going to be uh, as big as it could be for J.P. Morgan and, and and Bank of America. And you know the other thing about Citi is that they have flatlined their balance sheet since the third quarter of 2020. So they haven't really been growing their balance sheet uh, that much. Th- then we have Bank of America, which is a bank that would absolutely uh, uh, benefit from an SLR relief because they don't have a GCB issue like um, uh, J.P. Morgan. Um, and you have, you know, PNC Bank, which is a, which is a large uh, regional bank. I mean, you would say probably borderline national bank because it's so big. And so you you basically have two banks that would be the primary beneficiaries of of an SLR relief. Then you need to stop there because every time the Fed makes a decision about SLR relief and and all these changes to to the Basel III architecture, they do something called a impact study. And the aim of this impact study is to basically um, uh, quantify, you know, what type of a quantity benefit does the system get by doing this rule change. And, you know, if you come to the conclusion that of all these large banks that we are trying to help, we are only going to benefit one or two, not the entire class of GSIBs, should we really do this? Are we getting a lot of mileage out of, um, out of SLR relief? And I think, you know, the answer there is, is is not really because again you are going to be looking at five banks and really only two of them are going to be 
able to absorb a lot of reserves and, and treasuries. And when you look at the scale of things to come, you know, two to three trillion of additional liquidity, you know, it's clear that even those two banks are not going to be able to, to absorb all of that liquidity. You know, so, so observation number one, you know, how do you justify it when, when, the, when the universe of, of banks that can benefit from this on scale, i.e. your ability to add balance sheet capacity to the system is, is not that big to begin with? So I think that's definitely one thing that they are going to uh, they are going to look at. The second, because you know everything that we talked about is basically about how do you absorb the additional cash that's going to come into the system this year. The second aspect of uh, of it is is this: um, the SLR exemption is is very important from the perspective of stock buybacks, right? So a lot of these banks will say. Um, we have a lot of excess capital. And what that means is that they have a lot of excess capital relative to risk-weighted assets. Um, you know, risk-weighted assets are basically loans and, you know, the bank's credit portfolios, but loans have not really been growing. And the banks have had a, uh, a stock buyback ban that has been in place since April 1st. So basically all, all net income that the banking system has been generating for the past 12 months has been uh, retained. Um, and, you know, that added to banks uh, capital base. So, uh, you know, when the banks are saying that we have a lot of excess capital, that's excess capital relative to risk weighted assets, but it's not excess capital relative to all the reserves and the treasuries that have been accumulated uh, last year as, as the fiscal and monetary stimulus got underway. And so, you know, SLR exemption there is essential for the banks to be able to start returning some of this excess capital um, to shareholders. But again, you know, that's a capital return aspect. And not necessarily you know, th that will make it easier for the banks to return capital to shareholders, but it won't necessarily add, you know, balance sheet capacity to to, to the right. system. And I think that's why this makes it so complicated as a decision for the Fed. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So I guess two, two related questions. One, during the February bond market drama, like how much did SLR concerns weigh on dealers, um, in your opinion? And I know that you like to call around a lot of the banks and sort of pick up market color when these things happen. So I'm just curious how much that came up. And then secondly, what could the Fed do to sort of relieve balance sheet pressures instead of extending the SLR if you think that it's not necessarily the most efficient way of doing that? Okay. Well, um, I, think, I think the way uh, last week in, in the Treasury market and, and, and the SLR question are related is actually not through not through the dealer balance sheets. It's basically the bank portfolios that you want to think about, right? So, 
every mm-hmm. every large U.S. bank is going to have a, a dealer subsidiary and what's called a bank operating subsidiary, and it's the banks that have all the reserves and all the treasuries. The dealers have obviously a trading book that, but that in a grand scheme of things, that that's tiny. So when you look at an auction that goes bad, okay, a, a large part for that that auction is is basically because a bank bank portfolio doesn't show up because a bank portfolio doesn't know what's going to happen to this SLR exemption. You know, management mm-hmm. is getting the balance sheet ready for stock buybacks. If you want to buy back stock, you basically and an SLR exemption does not happen, then uh, you will be, you know, throwing balance sheet capacity away to basically carry uh, liquid assets. And if you do that, you know, it's much better to do that when you have less treasuries and more reserves. So, you know, the the the, the SLR exemption angle here is just basically, you know. Had this SLR exemption been resolved already, and and if, if we had clarity on it, and you know maybe if the Fed you know extended uh, permanently, you know then the banks would have been, I guess, more present at that auction, and so things would not have gone um, that bad. You know what happened with with again, you know the, these these carry traders getting shaken out of their positions. You know the dealers are going to kind of intermediate these things, but you know in in real time, I guess. You know, you always have these air pockets that that the dealers have to intermediate through, and when the flows go one way and then quickly the other way, mm. I mean, it's never a smooth process. But I would not say that you know dealers' intermediation capacity was impaired by any means because of, because of these SLR uh, deliberations. It's more like a bank portfolio: do I show up at the auction and take down those treasuries or or not? He had a second question, Tracy, but I forgot what that was. Oh, so the second question was, if the SLR, if uh, extending the SLR exemption isn't the most efficient way of fixing this problem, what could the Fed or regulators do instead? Again, I think I think you have to you have to go back to QE1 and QE, QE1 to QE3, you know, that uh, 2008 to 2015 period to see how the system absorbs liquidity uh, uh, that, that, that's put in by central banks. You know, the reason why I bring up QE1 to QE3 is the Fed's balance sheet expanded back then a great deal too, but half of that liquidity went to the large American banks and the other half has gone to the foreign banks. What makes last year an anomaly is that all of this liquidity that was pumped into the system went to the American banks and it stayed with the American banks. You know, when you look at you know the the uh, for, foreign banks' holdings of reserves at the Fed, uh, it's been largely flat. Okay, so you you now basically have two case studies where you know we have a big downpour of liquidity. It's all going to the American banks, and then we have another downpour of liquidity earlier in history where half of it went here, half of it went there. What is going to happen if the American banks are going to have balance sheet constraints? Well, uh, the system is going to adjust. Um, you know the stimulus checks that are going to come in; uh, those are going to be hitting people's bank deposits. You know these are all retail deposits that every bank loves. And you know when the stimulus checks go out, you know it's obviously going to be J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and, and and all these big national banks that are going to be getting it. But that's going to put them in a position where, if they have a fixed quantum of balance sheet, because SLR relief doesn't happen, then they are going to have to take a hard look at their deposit base. And say, okay, well, we are getting good retail deposits. We have some institutional deposits too. Some of it operating, some of it non-operating. Non-operating is basically excess cash that these institutions just park with with these large banks. And then, you know, the bank is going to be in a position where they are going to have to turn 
some of these institutional deposits away. Uh, there's a number of ways to, to, to doing that. I mean, you're basically dealing with corporate treasurers. So, you know, you will pick up the phone and try to negotiate with them. You know, I can't really hold it in the bank, but would you mind moving it over to my asset management arm and putting it into a money fund? Or if that doesn't work, you can put a put a fee on, you know, these deposits. Some of the banks are doing this already. Um, I'm not going to mention which bank, but one bank, for example, uh, in January started to charge institutions for deposit balances that are above their December 31st level. And, you know, that's just a, a polite way of saying that, look, if you place more cash with me, there will be a fee associated with that. So, you know, that's that's one way of encouraging depositors to move cash from one bank to another or from, from the banking system to, to, uh, to, to money funds. And then the third thing you're going to do uh, is you're going to move your deposit trades negative. And, you know, this is not, this is not theoretical because if you look at um, um, uh, JP Morgan's uh, fourth quarter earnings presentation, you know, they have a, a very interesting slide on this that, you know, we, we are now approaching balance sheet constraints. We have all these deposits coming in. The only asset really we can deploy these deposits into is cash at the Fed, which earns 10 basis points, uh, or we can buy treasuries, which, you know, at the 10 year point, it yields great, but otherwise, you know, treasuries are not, not really a good, um, good investment opportunity. And banks to begin with are not very excited about buying treasuries. And, you know, these are all very low ROE type activities. Um, and low ROE means, you know, you're diluting your, your bank's performance. And, you know, if you have a 15% ROE target, and all the balance sheet growth that you're getting is is happening in these is in these in these low spread assets, then you basically dilute your your bank's ROE. So you know the the, the point of this this page in the earnings presentation was that for us to improve the economics of our business, given all this downpour of liquidity and the system expansion that the Fed is forcing on the banking system, we will have to move our deposit rates negative because that's the way that we are going to be able to meet our our earnings targets. And so, you know, when you bring in this negative uh, deposit rate idea into the picture, then, you know, the, 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 the picture, you know, starts to fall together because what's happening here is that as the liquidity comes in and a banking system becomes balance sheet constrained, they are pushing the money away into money funds and the bill market because not everybody is going to want to invest in, in, in money funds. And so, you know, the, the idea of negative bill yields, which is, you know, a, a regime where we are, that, that we are borderline in already, you know, this regime of negative bill yields goes hand in hand with negative deposit rates or fees on bank deposits, because, you know, there's so much cash that the banking system just doesn't want to hold it. And, you know, that money is getting pushed around in the system and, and we are just trying to find a home for it. And, you know, I'm giving you a very long-winded answer, but basically, what are what is the technology to basically deal with this? You know, technology, quote unquote. You know, we have a tool for this, which is the reverse repo facility, right? All the money that is going into the money funds, uh, I mean, the money funds need an asset to invest this cash into, and so, you know, really, it would be as simple as whatever the money the banking system doesn't want and a money fund gets, the money fund should be able to place in the reverse repo facility one for one. But there's one problem with this reverse repo facility. It's capped at $30 billion per counterparty, which means that if you're a large money fund and you have $50 billion of inflows coming at you because, you know, JP Morgan just pushed away $50 billion of deposits, you will only be able to put 30 billion of that in the reverse repo facility. And that remaining 20 
you will be investing at uh, rates below that, you know, potentially at, at negative interest rates. You know, then the money funds can get into a situation where if I can invest at negative rates only, uh, my marginal inflows, I'm not going to want that money because, you know, a money fund is not supposed to break the buck. And not breaking the buck is, po- is possible only if yields in your investment universe are above zero. So a number of money funds that you talk to, the, the, especially the larger ones, are contemplating gating inflows and basically shutting the door um, to new money. And then you get into a dynamic where the bank doesn't want to get the money, uh, the money fund doesn't want to get the money. So then the bill market remains this kind of ultimate shock absorber that's going to take the inflows. And that's how you get to negative bill yields basically between now and, uh, and the beginning of, of summer. What is it that the Fed can do? The Fed could simply uncap the use of this RRP facility. And I think that would go at great lengths to, to ensuring that there is a flexible supply of, of an asset for the money fund complex uh, where you can invest cash at least at zero, or if you know, the Fed wants to raise the, the RRP rate from zero to five basis points, then you have a marginal asset for, for, the, for the money fund complex that pays five basis points, and then, and then you don't have any of these issues. And you know, that's why I have been arguing in, in, my, in my recent pieces that far more important than raising the price on the reverse repo facility is to uncap the use of that facility. Because you know, if you can only place X amount at five, at five basis points, once you're beyond that amount, you will be lending cash at rates less than five basis points and you still get into these dynamics that I talked talk about. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we've been talking a lot about plumbing, obviously, and this is sort of uh, the key story and the issue of like where to put all this extra cash and the lack of vehicles to place it. You know, we just have we have a few minutes left before we go. I want to get back to something, you know, in your first answer, we talked a little bit also about positioning and how low rates, they, the only way to compensate for low rates is leverage. Some of the issues with Australian investors having to uh, short the U.S. Treasury market to sort of hedge the fact that the uh, the belly of the Australian curve was blowing out. Let's pr- go back a little bit to that. And how much is that part of the story, this sort of concentrated positioning um, CTA flows? Uh, and how much is that part of the story that we've seen and how much of that is 
still built up? How much pent up uh, sort of tension is there? And how much is that uh, dissipated with last week's shock? Look, I think I think a lot of it has the so, so positions have shrunk, right? So short the valley along the back end. I think those positions have been downsized um, uh, relative to last week. I think I think we also had this again this episode of you know what's how, how committed are central banks to keeping you know in the case of the RBA rates in the belly anchored and I think you know the, the the central banks have spoken loud and clear you know the ECB has spoken loud and clear about you know they don't want any of their yields uh, going higher either the Fed hasn't really said anything and frankly you know I don't think I don't think that they should I mean maybe even even I was I was a bit too fast last week you know saying that well one thing that the Fed could do is a talk rates down do something like an operation twist you know sell front end stuff and buy back end stuff to to police the long end but but here's the point, you know, the long end, you don't really need to police because what you have seen is that you had this massive sell off. But then, you know, the 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 FX hedged buyers that we talk a lot about uh, on this show, at least when I come on, is, you know, they are now getting a beautiful amount of slope in the Treasury curve. And, and again, keep in mind, every time you talk about all this cash coming into the system, you know, and bill yields going negative, that means that these hedging costs are going to be very well anchored. And if anything, they are going to be going going lower. So basically, you know, the sell-off that happened last year, you know, some guys were shaken out of their positions, but that was an opportunity for another set of buyers. Because if you look at these FX hedged uh, yields, I mean, we are back to levels where we have last time been in 2015. And, you know, that's just great because, you know, when you look at yields in Japan and you look at yields in Europe, I mean, those are still abysmal, right? So any fixed income allocator is going to look at, uh, these types of sell-offs um, with great excitement, and that's that that was a part of the self-healing mechanism. And um, you know, on Thursday we had a bad day, but Friday and since then we've been having uh, uh, you know great great price action in, in in Treasury. So again, you know, some people win, some people lose, but I don't think that um, that the Fed should do anything about this. And again, you know, I think I think there will be a couple of these um, instances where. You know, as the inflation narrative and the reflation narrative is not going to go away anytime soon, you know, that's going to drive yield curve dynamics. I think, you know, that's that's a part of the that's a part of the uh, the, the, the future outlook. But I'm not sure that, you know, the Fed should do anything yeah. explicit about it. I think, you know, even even myself, I, I think I even regret saying last week that, you know, one of the things that the Fed should do is a, talk it down, B, do operation twist. I mean, sometimes you get wound up in the emotions of the markets. You know the market has has a lot of you know self healing properties, right? And and again, you know the, the the losses for some investors were an opportunity for the FX hedge buyers uh, later on, you know, on, on Friday and 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 and, the, and so far this week. So I want to go back to the start of our discussion and just talk very very broadly about the strength of the U.S. Treasury market in terms of actual structure and the plumbing. We've seen these instances where liquidity seems to evaporate. And, you know, last week wasn't necessarily as bad as what we saw in March, but we did see bid ask spreads on treasuries start to blow out. How concerned are you about, I guess, the structure of the treasury market or liquidity within the treasury market generally? You know, it, I think I think it's a philosophical question. I think, you know, markets 
are not supposed to be about no volatility at all. In, in fact, I think is a is a healthy phenomenon. And you know, I just don't think moves that we have seen last week. I mean, again, you know, m- markets go from one extreme to another, but but for as long as there is a you know mechanism whereby some value-based investor is going to provide an outside spread and put a lid on things, that's great. And I think, you know, what, what, what I think happened last week is actually, you know, I tend to focus on, you know, the self-healing properties of the market. And from that perspective, I think that the market worked fine. It's just that, you know, some levered players were, were shaken out of their position because, you know, the, the, the market's perception of, of how committed central banks or to to keeping rates low has has changed, and then you know central banks basically went the other way, and 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 the market uh, the market calmed down. So you know I wouldn't point to you know there's too much regulation, and that's why the market is trading this way, or 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 any of that. I think I think it's just it's just a healthy development. I mean it's not comfortable, especially if you're on the wrong side of the trade. But I don't. Uh, Think, but I don't think that uh, that we should be going um, down a path where you know we need to redesign the treasury market because there is occasional bats of volatility in it. Well, Zoltan, I think that's a great place to leave it, and I, we could always talk to you for a few hours. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Zoltan. That was really great. Th- thank you very much for having me, guys. So, Joe, it's always great having Zoltan on, and his explanation of the price action last week was probably the clearest one that I've seen so far. And, you know, a lot of people were sort of freaking out about this being a central bank miscommunication or the taper tantrum redux. But actually, like, if anything, it resembled a sort of technical shift in positioning as levered players, you know, rethought their bets. Yeah, there's always a lot of when when rates move violently, you know, we can't really help but ascribe some sort of deep economic significance to them. And people love narratives about, oh, the bond market is challenging the Fed or inflation or maybe something with fiscal policy. And I guess that's always there to some extent. And perhaps um, the sort of the difficulties in communication that maybe the uh, the Antipodean central banks have had New Zealand and Australia kicking things off. They've had uh, sort of problems with communicating about their medium term rate path. But in the end, like when you have a bunch of people who are all levered into sort of roughly the same positioning and you have these other clouds hanging over the market, such as uh, the questions about the SLR that uh, Zoltan right. described, you can just get stuff. It doesn't always necessarily have to have sort of meaning per se. Right. It's sort of the uh, the GameStop equivalent for the treasury market. Sometimes things just happen. I was cut, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily mean yeah, that, sometimes, like, this, oh, go on. No, that's exactly right. I actually thought about it with respect to GameStop. It's like something, sometimes things just happen. And just in the same way everyone was like, oh, this is class warfare, or this says something about T plus two. It's like, yeah, but sometimes things just happen in markets. <laughs> um. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I also thought it was great that Zoltan kind of, I mean, just on the point about 
the bond market challenging the Fed, which was a narrative that we saw come out yeah. in some commentary next week. You know, the Fed can't control the bond market. The bond vigilantes have returned, that sort of thing. I thought it was really interesting um, that Zoltan basically said that he regretted uh, writing last week that the Fed could do an Operation Twist or something like that to keep a cap on bond yields. Like it, he sort of admitted that he was caught up in the moment and that things have changed. Uh-huh. But but that's like it's not something that you hear from a lot of analysts necessarily, that sort of honesty. No, totally right. And also this idea, it's like, look, like bonds are not equities and they do have, as he pointed out, this sort of um, natural curb mechanism. And we have mm. gotten to the point where there's steepness in the uh, curve such that for foreign FX hedged buyers, there is now value there. A new set of bidders comes in. So, you know, with a cut with a with GameStop, you can have an extremely long period of time in which the underlying uh, in which the value of the security is extremely divorced from anything resembling fundamentals. And it really seems much harder to have that. It's what it's hard to like really even imagine what like a, a treasury <laughs> bubble would mean because you do have these sort of natural buyers that come in at certain levels if you get a disconnect and disconnects do happen between fundamentals and rates uh very quickly uh new sources of money emerge in one direction or or another and you don't get the moves going on forever i just had a great idea for a uh, financial market novel which would be you know a scenario in which wall street bets tries to take on the treasury market and force a squeeze That'd be interesting. $21 trillion market versus uh, Redditors. Maybe we should write a novel together. We've we've never been able to come up with a good idea for a <laughs> like proper finance book together. Maybe the answer is a novel. Let's just go the fiction route. I'd be up for yeah. that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson, on Twitter. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.